Caitlin, do you know what season you are? I have no idea. I feel like I've seen some kind of chart of this, like from the 90s, maybe from Mary Kay. That's how I first learned about it. My mom sold Mary Kay and she she's the one who introduced me to it and helped me know what my color was. Well, this is probably a stereotype because of your hair, <laughs> but I'm guessing you're an autumn. That's right. I would guess that you're a winter. I feel like you're like bold gym tones. Because I have sullen, pale skin, like a person who hasn't seen sunlight <laughs> for six months. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way and showing our true colors in New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief, best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian, Jamar Tisby. They've answered every question definitively such that there's no more room for mystery, for questioning, for curiosity. That rigidity is really what I think hampers the witness of evangelicals today. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Well, speaking of beauty throwback trends, <laughs> I was recently re-watching oh, some man. Friends episodes. It's a good time. <laughs> it's a good time. But I will say the first thing that I noticed was how skinny... Yes. Monica and Rachel and Phoebe were like real thin. Like they turned sideways and you were like, where'd they go? I also dabble in the Friends reruns and <laughs> it is striking and it makes sense mm -hmm. because this was the height of heroin chic and 90s diet culture. So it was definitely in the ether. I didn't notice it at the time, of course, because that just sort of was like, oh, that's what people are supposed to look like. And also, like, I was a teen girl, so that didn't seem like an mm -hmm. alarming aesthetic because I looked like them, but I was 15, yes. not 29 or 30. <laughs> but people today look a lot more normal on TV. I think that's why it struck me so much when I rewatched it. It has definitely struck me as an adult. And as you said, it's that we're watching it now as adults mm -hmm. with like woman, womanly bodies uh -huh. <laughs> that don't usually look like teenage girl bodies. Yes. But also there are these cultural shifts in entertainment, television, fashion culture that we're trying to show a wider array of what beautiful can look like and represent what, you know, actual human bodies look like. Yeah. And I actually don't think I had realized how much that shift had happened until I went back and watched that show and was so struck by how thin they were. And then I was like, oh, even the people that I see on TV now that I think look thin, they don't look like that kind of thin. They look like kind of more of a normal, mm -hmm. healthy thin. Yeah. I wasn't allowed <laughs> to watch Friends growing up all that much until the later years. But for me, the most formative images probably came from like teen fashion magazines. There was this one summer where we still had a babysitter. I was in sixth or seventh grade and she brought over 
all these copies of 16 and 17. Oh, yeah. It was like three or four issues, and I would just pour over them all summer. You know, that was like the first summer that I learned yes. about mascara and shaving your legs, which <laughs> we can also talk about. <laughs> but it was so formative because these magazines and arguably these like teen or young adult oriented shows were explicitly trying to tell you what you should be like. It was kind of like an education mm -hmm. that they were offering. Oh man, I ate those up. I really did. The teen ones and I mean, I and I would get some of the like more adult ones too, like in style. Mm -hmm. Vogue was a little too rich for me. But <laughs> you weren't purchasing Balenciaga as a sixteen year old. <laughs> no, I wasn't part of uh the gossip girl crowd. Yes. <laughs> In my Colorado rural town. But like, I loved the fashion. I loved the beauty tips. And yeah, I mean, it was fun to look through those. And they, and it was a lot mm -hmm. of it was celebrity stuff. There was this idea of like, that's who mm -hmm. I want to look like, or that's who I want to dress like. But also they were often in bikinis and in like tight clothing. And it, I mean, again, as I said, at the time, I was like, yeah, that's what people should look like because I was a teenager. But I also don't think I realized just how much it was forming and shaping my idea of what I would look like as a woman mm -hmm. and how much I went ahead and carried that with me into womanhood, <laughs> you know, when as my body changed and as like life was just different and and I was still holding on to this idea of like, this is what a beautiful, sexy mm -hmm. woman looks like. I mean, after having spent so many decades absorbing these messages everywhere from TV shows to magazines to ads to celebrity gossip websites now to, of course, Instagram and social media, it can be really hard to deprogram. Mm -hmm. Like it can be really hard to start to resist those images and say, that isn't the ideal. Thinness isn't a virtue. Thinness isn't more beautiful than any other kind of body type. And isn't more healthy and isn't more like there were all these other, you know, like you said, it was like attached to an idea of like virtue too, of living in a superior way. I honestly blame the celebrities for so much of this. When you start reading about what celebrities eat, like, you know, they'll like go public with like, well, I start my day with blah, blah, blah. It is so yeah. weird. They're so weird. Like who lives? Well, this just happened, <laughs> yeah, right? I was like, just reading two about weeks ago or a week ago with <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. There must be a reason why the goop thing is so popular. It must be touching on something that a lot of women want for themselves. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, so she went on this podcast, right, recently. I think mm -hmm. it was called The Art of Being Well. And I think this is part of the weirdness of her whole thing is it's like it's also like tied up in like wellness culture and some of the spirituality that gets meshed up in that as well. Um, like crystals can help make you thin, I guess. I don't know. Or maybe like... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> On this podcast in which she also talked about getting like ozone on like rectal ozone, which I don't. Well, uh, uh, I'm sorry. This is some kind of gas you put in your butt. 
I'm immediately Googling. No, I'm not. I don't, don't want to Google I didn't it. really read into it very far. It's very odd. But that's what I'm saying. These people are so strange. So weird. And but okay, so somebody commented on this. Mm-hmm. Um, she got a lot of blowback for this particular podcast in which she talked about her extreme nutrition approaches like intermittent fasting. She drinks only bone broth for lunch. She eats dinner very early and it's paleo and then she doesn't eat again after that until whatever she eats for breakfast. I was just reading about this like two days ago, so it's fresh in my mind. (laughs) She breaks her fast with black coffee. Mm -hmm. Then around lunchtime, she has soup such as bone broth which, let the record show, is not mm-hmm. really soup and is not a real meal. It's high in protein, but that's it. Then she, yeah, she eats paleo for dinner and she's mentioned something about steamed veggies. And she probably meant also some kind of protein as well. But when you think about just <laughs> caloric intake yeah. and what everyone needs just in order to, for their bodies to function, that is not anywhere close to what your body actually needs, mm-hmm. not just like what is enjoyable, which is you know a whole other mm-hmm. part of this conversation. But in terms of health, actual health for your body, this is typically called starvation. Yes. Uh, one person commented on that, that this is 90s children's trauma in a nutshell. And I was like, yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think about how much influence that kind of interview or information could have over other women who look at Gwyneth Paltrow and think like, I want to look like her, like, Mm -hmm. and who grew up with similar like body messages that we got counting calories, always restricting, Mm -hmm. uh, not eating past a certain time, skipping meals. If you're going to have, if you have to eat, grab a handful of almonds, which is, I, I didn't realize this, this is why this subculture of women are called almond moms. Were you aware of this? <laughs> yes. I, not until this interview. Yeah, it's just this like extreme distillation of very deep-seated beliefs around food and beauty and appearance mm-hmm. that is really hard to unprogram. Recently, I came across... Jamila Jamil Instagram post. And I don't know if you follow her on Instagram, but I love following her because she is basically just like F the beauty industry and all of these pressures that are put on women to look and act a certain way. Yes. In her post, she said, don't listen to celebrities about what they eat. Most of them have some sort of disordered eating, not all, but most just scroll on and talk to professional nutritionists not a bunch of traumatized women who are mocked and scrutinized over their appearance daily. Wow. And I think it struck me both just like her recognition that the industry is so toxic and messy and also don't listen to those women because they're kind of a mess in this regard, but also no wonder they are because Mm -hmm. they live within this toxic milieu of like, right all of this pressure on how they're supposed to look and constantly getting feedback, both good and bad Mm -hmm. about how they look and then adjusting and Mm -hmm. living under that kind of microscope all the time. Because I I would imagine even the good feedback 
when you're doing this like unhealthy stuff and then you get like rewarded for it, you're going to keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, her, her comments really just underscore that there's this larger industry and Hollywood culture that makes these rail thin, you know, actresses and models both perpetuating a problem, but they're also victims. Yes. Right. Like they are stuck in something in a subculture that, and an industry that kind of reinforces the most important thing about you is how you look and you must look this particular way. I mean, I think about actresses going for auditions and do they get this feedback that, mm-hmm. well, we'd love to cast you for this role, but you have to lose 25 pounds first. Like, no wonder they're obsessed because their careers are kind of hanging on mm-hmm. so much of their appearances. And I'm sure that men face some of that, right? Like, I'm thinking about, what is his name? <laughs> The guy who got jacked. <laughs> the actor. Hugh Jackman? <laughs> well, yeah, it's literally in his name. The The actor is Kamal Nanjiani, who got, like, super ripped. Anyway. Oh, and Chris Pratt. But without a doubt, this is more, this is much more toxic and traumatic for women. Yeah. Well, when I think about often the ideal for men it's actually like a healthier ideal. Right. Like even if they're having to get a lot of muscle, like you have to eat a lot to get that kind of muscle. And you have to work out a lot to get that kind of muscle. And what mm-hmm. we're asking women mm-hmm. to do is something very different, which is to shrink their bodies. It's almost like encouraged to disappear in a way. You know, I mean, it's not like this stuff isn't linked to other aspects of patriarchy. We like our women small and quiet. <laughs> today's guest has a lot of thoughts about body image and the messages that are given to us and that we absorb when we think about the flesh and blood bodies that we live in cole arthur riley is author of the best-selling book this here flesh spirituality liberation and the stories that make us One of the bigger injustices around women in in beauty standards is we're supposed to both withstand the weight of the critique and the demand for us to achieve these beauty ideals and rise to meet them and to not be affected by them. Our conversation with Cole is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. All the news from the pews. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward getting the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Here's a recent email from a listener. She said she's been listening to the show since pretty much the beginning. I'm a born and raised New York Cityer who left for a few years but moved back as an adult and can relate to so much of your commentary. I really feel seen and heard and understood, even as I journey on my own as a Christian, now calling Harlem my home. Aww. We'd love to hear from the rest of you. Email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Today, 
Today's guest is Cole Arthur Riley, author of the best-selling book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Cole is a beautiful writer, and we're so excited to have her here today. Hey, Cole. Hey, Cole. Thanks for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me. So a lot of us, when we think about where we learned about body image and kind of the ideal body, quote unquote, we think about things that we learned or saw in our adolescence. So going back to your adolescence, which we all love to do, (laughs) and those formative years, where did you really absorb messaging around body image? Is there a specific image or icon or a moment that really stands out to you as encapsulating your ideas of the perfect body, quote unquote? Yes. I started training in, in ballet when I was around seven, and it was kind of around age 11 where that started to pick up. And yeah, it was complicated. My school, like my school system was predominantly black. My teammates and people that were training with me, they, it was predominantly white. I was the only Mm -hmm. black body in the room. I also just have always had a a bit of a larger build, which if there's anyone listening that's (laughs) done ballet, um, you know that there's a a very particular idea of what makes a a graceful Mm -hmm. dancer, a beautiful dancer. So I was getting a lot of my imagination around how my own body would look in the world from staring mm-hmm. at myself in mm. a, you know, floor to ceiling mirror for about six hours, five times a week. There was something inescapable yeah. to my own appearance, to my own face, to every part of me. And there was a level of analysis around, you know, how I was able to move my hands, you know, ballet, it's so much about assimilation. So if, if your body doesn't um, conform to the, the patterns, that's trouble. And how did that affect you? I mean, kind of grappling with the sense of I need to assimilate, I need to conform to this particular ideal. Like, how did you internalize that? Yeah, And that's an yeah. extreme ideal. I mean, ballet bodies are mm-hmm. extreme. Yeah, it was terrorizing especially as the only black mm-hmm. body in the room. It's an unachievable task to desire sameness from my mm-hmm. body. I mean, even down to what color my tights were versus what color the, the tights of the mm-hmm. person next to me were. I was constantly kind of seeing myself uh, stand out. And I was just someone who didn't love to be seen but had you know, grown accustomed and, and kind of fallen in love with this art that in some ways d- demands that. And ballet did a lot of good things for me, but also I think a lot of the the shame I was feeling in other aspects of my existence mm-hmm. as just children, shame tends to rest most heavily on our bodies. We can't really dissect where those emotions are coming from. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not uncommon for that shame to be turned against yourself. So a lot of the shame I was experiencing in other aspects of my life, I had this very clear outlet, if you want to call it that, to kind of pick myself apart, to try to fix something that, you know, really didn't need a cure. Mm -hmm. Were there counter narratives that you were getting at the time? Or how did you kind of eventually begin to break out of that or find a, a different kind of truth about your body? My family... They are some of the most affirming, mm-hmm. <laughs> affirming people. And I had a lot of different 
aunts and uncles that lived with us, a grandma that lived with us, times where we would live with them. And so I had a pretty expansive network in terms of my family system, all of people who from a very young age, especially my father and grandma, really impressed upon us the narrative of our beauty, of our worth. <laughs> and obviously that's not always done perfectly, so I don't want to, you know, overstate it, but I would say it was a core kind of part of our home culture. Yeah, my father and others in my family sensed a pretty extreme shyness and that they were going to need to really, really counter some narratives I would receive, whether that be in classrooms or at dance, you know, to counter that or just the world that contains so much anti-blackness mm-hmm. and kind of ground me in an origin of, of, of dignity and beauty and delight. So we had a lot of rituals with my father who raised us for, you know, half of our lives on, on our own, just bodily care. Mm-hmm moisturizing us at night and doing our hair in the morning. And I would look in the mirror alongside my father as he was looking in the mirror and getting ready. And we didn't do like mantras or things like that. Hmm. But I mean, in that way, I'll say that that also led to a different kind of shame because I felt like there were people in my family who could access this belief in and the goodness and the beauty of their bodies. And there are times where, you know, I just didn't understand why I couldn't access that same belief Hmm. for myself. And I wanted more, you know, mm. be better, Cole, just stop hating yourself, yeah. you know. Um, and so That's it became, a, in a weird way, another path to, yeah, self-hatred. I'm 32 now and I'm being formed a lot in memory about the things my father and my grandma, Ma mm. and my my aunt would, would say to us growing up. I'm being formed in, in those memories. And also I think, you know, I live with chronic pain, chronic health conditions and that's completely shifted my relationship to my body where I've almost had to become a fiercer protector of it because I know it's just like trying its best to sustain me. And that really has changed my relationship to, yeah, my own face, my hands, my arm. Yeah. Mm. We want to come back to that in a little bit of how you've learned to sort of love your body in the midst of chronic illness and also um, in the midst of aging. But um, I, I do want to go back a little bit. You talked about ballet and another thing, you know, when I think about like what formed our ideas around beauty as young people, as teens, I think Barbie, I think the beauty industry, I think something like ballet. I don't always think like, church and C.S. Lewis. But one of the things that you mentioned kind of early in your book is that part of what you learned about your own spirituality or what you kind of were taught about spirituality was like it had to be this sort of thing that was divorced from body. And you talked about like the the heady, like real spirituality is reading C.S. Lewis. And a lot of what we were taught uh, I think in that era, especially in certain Christian traditions was like mind and soul over body and body mm-hmm. is in fact like a source of temptation. It's bad. It's dangerous. Talk about how, why that just doesn't resonate with you and how you kind of broke out of that. I mean, I think you say that like that felt like violence to you as a black woman. Yeah. What, what I, what, what I haven't said yet is out of my life as a dancer, I, you know, developed a eating disorder, bulimia, mm-hmm. which in having independence, it increased when I went to college. At the same time, as I was 
kind of experiencing these white intellectual Christian spaces, kind of receiving this narrative that, that you're talking about, Roxy, of your body is bad, you know, the soul, focus on the soul, don't follow your body, you know, that's intoxicating. <laughs> that's, that's intoxicating to someone whose whole life is wrapped up in this massive secret that's completely turned against the body and this form mm-hmm. of cruelty and loneliness, however you want to put it. There's something really validating about the things I was doing to my body when I was receiving these narratives. Mm. Yeah, there's this massive issue with me practicing violence against my body on a daily basis, but that's, you know, secondary, maybe even tertiary to like the big meaning of life, the big Mm -hmm. questions of life. Mm. Yeah, it kind of helped me like remain in denial about Mm -hmm. some of my behaviors for longer than I wonder if I would have. Maybe I would have found Mm -hmm. other justification for those behaviors, but kind of led me to push them aside because I was kind of inflating my sense of spiritual maturation with Mm -hmm. all these things I was learning about the Bible and doctrine for the first time ever. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm very grateful for this. The same time I was kind of receiving those messages, I was also in a lot of English classes at Pitt and was reading a lot of novelists for the first time, Black literature that I'd never encountered in in high school before that, that possessed a kind of spirituality in them that was really not all that concerned with like teaching or, you know, like Toni Morrison, she's not mm-hmm. trying to tell anyone what to think about God when she conveys the scene of the clearing and, and beloved. Like she's interested in kind of conveying the human experience and and also, you know, the sermon that baby Shugs, the matriarch, gives in that clearing. It's not a traditional gospel message. And Toni Morrison points that out. She says she didn't tell them to go and sin no more. She mm-hmm. instead launches into this beautiful poetic monologue about of having a fidelity to the body, you know, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that breathes, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it, love it hard. She talks about mm-hmm. loving these different aspects of your body, which is so was so subversive compared to the messages of spirituality mm-hmm. I was receiving, say, in like a church pew. And something about what, what a spirituality I was encountering in literature felt more familiar to me because of my home culture. And even though I wasn't raised in a religious home, there was something ab- about what I was encountering in, in Black novelists where I'm like, okay, this feels familiar. This feels a bit like a homecoming. I can't rightly deny it. It feels more true to me. There are lots of conversations right now about the nature of trauma and how trauma is stored in our bodies and trauma can be passed down intergenerationally. So why is it important to understand our family's stories and how they might be showing up in our bodies and in our physical lived experience. Yes. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I think there's so so much like this growing body of research around the things that we inherit in terms of trauma and that's definitely worthy exploration. I learned some manner of resistance from watching my father look at his own reflection in the mirror. I learned something about how to look at my face in the mirror and not look away and not kind of like scowl. Watching that, it gives you a a different, you know, imagination for how you can relate to your body. But I also think we inherit these patterns of how to punish ourselves, you know, in our families. We hear things as children, we pick up on Mm -hmm. these things and it can be dangerous. But I also think there can be a lot of good as well. I'm very interested in this. 
I can't wait to receive more research around what kind of patterns of like beauty and survival we inherit. Mm. Um, There's so much talk about, you know, inheriting the trauma and like, man, wouldn't it just be great that in a few more years, we would have a lot of sound research around what if, you know, my great grandmother's joy did I inherit? Mm -hmm. As women, societally, so much of how we're valued is often tied up in how we look. And as you've been kind of working through these things and thinking about embodiment and thinking about loving your body, how have you come to make a distinction between loving your body and finding worth in how you look? Yeah, you're naming like a really credible tension. I was caring for a child for a little bit recently and um, they made a comment about not liking the color of their skin mm-hmm. and I ended up Googling it and <laughs> found all of these articles that said, actually, in that situation, you shouldn't just say, you know, no, don't say that. Mm. Your skin is wonderful. Like, why do you think that? Because it it's another kind of entrance for self-critique for them in terms of how they're seeing the world. Mm-hmm. The suggestions that I was reading were to say kind of, wow, that must be pretty hard. That must be painful to to feel that way. I love the way your skin looks. I also kind of love the way my skin looks, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes. And complicate the conversation a little bit. Hmm. It sometimes feels like you're being yelled at to like, love yourself. Like if you don't love yourself, no one else will, right? That's what we're told. Mm -hmm. I despise that, that train of thought. But it's worth saying, I think, that the answer to kind of those moments of like, malformation, I think can't be to like punish yourself for not being able to rouse some level of belief in your beauty. And that's what I think is, you know, one of the bigger injustices around women in in beauty standards is we're supposed to both withstand the weight of the critique and the demand for us to achieve these beauty ideals and rise to meet them and to not be affected by them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, especially in Christian circles, this feeling of superiority for the women who just have somehow managed. And I I think it's a lot of dishonesty in that. Mm, Yeah. But I don't blame that dishonesty. I blame the system that demands us to both meet the the demand and bandage ourselves up and pretend like, you know, we're not bleeding from years of being told, be this, be that, be this, you know. I think of two very competing narratives. Like, you have to believe you're beautiful. And then there's this other (laughs) competing narrative that was once a country song that was like, she don't know she's beautiful, and that's why she's beautiful. (laughs) And I feel like we are supposed to somehow be both of, like, hold both of those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't win. Well, no wonder women feel exhausted, right? (laughs) Because these are completely impossible psychological and emotional states to, like, hold on to at the same time. Yeah, and And we're all supposed to be sort of French, you know, and, like be beautiful without really trying very hard (laughs) yes it has to be effortless if you try does it mean anything you know (laughs) yeah you just touched on kind of christian subculture can you speak to how christian subculture kind of perpetuates rather than heals some of these narratives Mm. i certainly can speak to it in the context of like white christian cultures i went on this kind of service trip thing with a group of Christians. And there was one night where we split into groups by two genders, male and female. And the women, we all went 
upstairs. The, the men, they were downstairs talking about porn from what we gathered. The women, we <laughs> all went right. upstairs and we, they had all of these bridal magazines laid out. Oh, you guys are going to cringe. Mm. Like, oh. how did how did I find myself in this circle? These, this is the thing my parents feared when I told them I'd started going to church in college. So there are all these bridal magazines laid around on the floor. And our job was to pick through and make a kind of collage woman of like what we wanted our bridal gown to look like or what we wanted to look like on our wedding day. And there was obviously this kind of like tangential metaphor about being prepared and like being prepared for the bridegroom. Yeah. Okay. And then this our actual grooms. Already. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Being prepared for the bridegroom and our actual grooms. So this is very new to me. Like mm-hmm. I was getting big time like cult vibes and I, I, again, wasn't raised in the church, so my friends that were in the group didn't look like they were batting an eye. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do this. Then we go around and we start talking about this kind of collaged woman we've assembled, which are all white, by the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, something hit me as we were going around and the things that people were describing of, this isn't about our wedding days. People were choosing what they wanted to look like. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I can't explain it. It was like this really, this like wave of kind of fear. This isn't even about what they're saying it's about, which in and of itself is kind of terrible and comes with a whole slew of questions. But people were picking and choosing, oh, you know, I, I wanted to dye my hair, <laughs> like my nose, my, and it it was completely not what the leaders had in mind for how this debrief was going, or maybe a very deep understanding of the task that Mm -hmm. surpassed the depth that the leaders were able to (laughs) kind of dream up. And so, you know, I just sat there in a circle listening to us all just talk about the things that we hate about ourselves. But Mm. instead of saying that you hate them about yourself, you talk about them as aspiration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a wild story. And I probably at that point in my like level of maturity was – blaming more the women mm-hmm. than the air mm. and who's kind of putting the air in the room that, mm-hmm. that everyone's breathing to, to make them kind of feel and think this way. Mm-hmm. Far more than men, if at all, there was a lot of just programming that had to do with the woman's body under the guise of some other metaphor or some other thing. Mm-hmm. I know this isn't every white you know, evangelical space, but the one that I was a part of, it certainly was this kind of recurring trope of like everything that Christ endured on the cross, everything that his body gave, are you prepared to give that? And it was like this weird, indirect way to, I think, communicate that your body doesn't really matter all that much unless it's in terms of what it will be sacrificed for, how it will be sacrificed. That, mm-hmm. that, that's about as, as far as, you know, our minds were permitted to go. And the story never began with your bodies are good. Never began mm-hmm. with like the garden and like the beauty right. of the, the human body, the strength mm-hmm. of the body or the frailty of the, the human body, you know. But it was more around this is what's gone wrong. That's the beginning of the story. Your body is bad. The desires, the the sensations, the smells, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you write quite a bit about the health difficulties that you faced. And I think uh, in particular, remembering an instance, you know, in Paris where you're writing about being like bedridden there. And 
being very angry at your body and eventually coming to a place though where you could say or did say my body was not the bondage which I've had in my head (laughs) a lot and I guess um are you still able to say that and embrace that and how has sort of how has leaning into that changed the way that you've come to terms with those limitations of your illness I think most days I'm really proud of myself that I am able to still say that. Mm. Most kind of breakthroughs in my life never tend to happen on like a continuum. It it never feels very linear, you know. But there was a a major shift that happened in Paris where I started to think, okay, maybe it's not my body that's the problem. I'm not idealizing chronic illness. It it sucks. But what if it's Mm. not? my body that needs conquered, you know, and Mm -hmm. what you said, I don't remember writing that, but thanks for reading, (laughs) but my body is not the bondage. That's not the thing I need rescued from, which Mm -hmm. was my original prayer on on that bed in Paris. But I've started to really think of my body as like, it's doing everything it can Mm -hmm. to keep me here, as opposed to thinking about it with like, a deficiency first kind of mindset of, oh, here's what I can't do. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, I think, oh man, I'm so proud that like my my eyes are really trying right now. They're doing their best. And when I started to have that kind of like graciousness toward my body of like, no, actually your hands are doing their best and they're really like on your side. Mm. It changed a lot about how I view, you know, pain, being sick and just my own relationship to myself. But there there are days where, you know, it's it's certainly harder than others just because of the the sense of responsibility one feels when like caring for other people in their lives and having to say no. So it doesn't mm-hmm. come without comp- complication. But I, I definitely feel, feel nearer to myself than I, I probably ever have. Thank you so much for sharing of yourself today, Cole, and just for a really rich conversation and for, for writing a beautiful book as well. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. I was glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me into this conversation. Roxy, what is one thing you would say that has helped undo or heal some of the toxic body image lessons we received from shows like Friends or the teen magazines growing up? Man, I still feel like I have work to do, you know, like I still feel that desire to look a certain way, Mm -hmm. the prescribed way, the advertised way is still, still strong in me. Mm -hmm. You know, as I've gotten older, there have been like times in my life when I've gained weight or lost weight. And I feel like the years when I've like weighed more, I've really had such a hard time Mm -hmm. and I've like felt really crappy about myself and it really bothers me how much those periods like really ate at my self-worth and how much when I got fit again or got in shape again like how much better I felt about myself so I'm not getting I'm not actually answering your question about how I'm getting better (laughs) I'm just talking about how it's still there I will say like I in the last three years I've gotten very into um weightlifting which we've maybe talked about on here I can't remember but there's its its own whole problematic world about imagery and bodybuilding and 
body image and all of that as well. Mm -hmm. But I will say one of the messages that I've really appreciated in that world is that you have to eat like you have to eat a lot of food you have to take in a good amount of calories in order to build muscle and yes like you would do calorie cuts but but that's not like the goal the goal is like feeding yourself so that you can build muscle and exercise this is called bulk and cut yes Bulking yes. and cutting. Yes. I see men on Twitter talking about this sometimes. I'm like, what are they talking about? <laughs> Again, I know there's a lot of problems in that world and and it can be a super sexist world as the Washington Post did mm-hmm. a whole series on that recently. But I have appreciated the messaging around food and just that it's like this this necessary and nourishing and like you you can't have this body that you're working for unless mm-hmm. you're feeding yourself well. Yeah, I'm always more in favor of eating more than eating less as a, as a rule. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I have this vivid memory of running a half marathon about 10 years ago. And I'm really glad that I did it. And I felt like it was a great thing to train for. But in the back of my mind, part of what I wanted to have happen is that I wanted to lose weight. And I remember being disappointed that I I didn't, I mean, in any real noticeable way. Mm-hmm. But then when I, yeah. <laughs> when I look back on that, I'm like, Caitlin, if you weren't happy with how your body looked then, you're not ever going to be happy with how your body looks. Because I don't want to live in a perpetual cycle of looking back on previous eras and thinking, oh, if only I could get back to how my body looked then. I know. I know. I don't even think I learned about calories until I was in my 20s, you know. Yeah. But I don't want to live in this perpetual cycle of if only I could get back to Mm -hmm. what I looked like or how I felt then because I want to be grateful for all that my body allows and Mm -hmm. to be free, to be free from living in regret or comparison, like self-comparison. You know, there's this phrase that you hear people say women say um that like I wish I was as skinny as I was the first time I thought I was fat Mm -hmm. and I think that's part of it like you're just always like looking back and going oh I wish I looked that way I would and it's and you're never going to even even if you got that skinny again like you're older you're gonna look different that is true like it it highlights that actually this is all about a mindset and not about mm-hmm. an objective reality. This is this is about perception and how we're trained to see our bodies. It's also how we perceive each other's bodies and how we mm. talk about that to each other. It is kind of a female bonding thing. It is to complain about yourself and also to, you know, like I noticed that like last summer I lost some weight and I noticed that everyone started being like, wow, you look so good. And I don't think that's bad. I think it's great that we compliment each other, but I also like recognize that that happened because I was fitting more of an ideal. I, and I know that tendency mm-hmm. to be like, wow, you look so good when people lose weight. We reward each other for losing weight, but we don't typically say you look strong Mm-hmm. You know, you look healthy. You look like you're having a great summer. Right. Yeah. It's on us in some ways as friends and as neighbors to be able to help 
not keep each other chained to those expectations. Amen, sister. The times that I have felt the worst about my body have been around other women who are very fixated on calories. Mm -hmm. It's this weird mimetic thing. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, if she just orders a salad, I guess I can't get the fries. I'm here to say that's bull. Beep. Get the fries, y'all. Get the fries. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. I've always had a very round face. My mm-hmm. cheeks hold a lot. <laughs> like a squirrel, apparently. Yeah. I was like, what are you a chipmunk? And I, I'm just like, you know what? I'm not going to look like a corpse when I'm 55. That's what I'm holding on to.